Yo, what's up? It's me, Ronald, doing it again. The independent-minded podcast, talking with indie artists who are smarter than me, more successful than me. You do nothing. More attractive than me. You are nothing. It's basically an exercise in humility. You're worthless and weak. Listen to The Dressing Down on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud. Where the hell else is this thing on? I don't know. And hear new music from and interesting conversations with some veterans of the industry, some new blood too. It's all depending on who's available. I'm here in Washington, D.C., existing, living my new life, trying it on. Not sure how it fits yet, but I'm giving it my best shot. Follow all the magic at baldfreak.com. Check out archived episodes. And hey, let's hang out on the social zombie networks at baldfreakmusic. Because real life doesn't exist anymore, right? Not the case, however, with my latest guest. I've been a longtime fan of his band Cake. I heard the song The Distance back in the late 90s, and I was like, yep, digging it. Been a fan of the band ever since then, and so it was a thrill talking to John McRae for episode 81 of the Independent Minded Podcast. John's the founding member, vocalist, principal songwriter in Cake, and I was lucky enough to talk with him in a Doubletree hotel lobby for about 90 minutes, the best parts of which you're about to hear. After I play the first single from Cake in eight years, it's called Sinking Ship, And after my talk with John, I'm going to venture a guess that the song's lyrics are reflective of not only John's feelings on the music industry, but most likely on the country at large. Just guessing. A little background on the Doubletree Hotel, by the way. Cake was in town performing with Ben Folds at the Merriweather Pavilion. They were coming from a show in New York the night before, and John decided to stay behind and sleep in. So instead of meeting him backstage at the venue, we got together at the Doubletree in beautiful Columbia, Maryland. And by beautiful, I mean there's nothing there. And I got there first, took a $40 cab ride from my place, set up my mic, set up my recorder. I find a nice quiet spot in the lobby. And no kidding, about two minutes after I set everything up, these guys start coming out behind this facade door, bringing out banquet tables to serve food on, plates of clattering, and I just laugh. I guess 81 episodes in, I'm getting less and less nervous about doing these things. But still, you don't know what to expect when you talk to some of these folks. The guy just got off an Amtrak train. His posse consists of him and his manager. He's lugging a big suitcase. He didn't get a lot of sleep the night before, most likely, so I couldn't blame John McRae if he was a little cranky. But he wasn't cranky. He was great. He was opinionated. He was intellectual. And like most of the artists I interview, he gave me much more time than I deserved. So I want to thank him for that right here on the podcast. They say never meet your idols, and I guess this podcast just takes a big duty all over that saying. Anyway, we move to another part of this huge hotel lobby, and at one point, these kids are just staring at us as we sat at a table with two microphones yakking away about indie music. So that's uh, my biggest live podcast audience to date, I guess. Five kids coming out of a hotel pool. Hey, they say you got to start at the bottom to get to the top. Let's get it going with the new single from Cake, Sinking Ship, then my conversation with John McRae right here on Independent Minded. Let's eat. It's right. Helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they do. We are on a sinking 
And if your people are the best Tell me why are you wearing a vest This investigation into disinformation Keeps putting everyone to the test Yeah. Hopefully the wedding won't start uh, while I'm in the middle of the interview here. Maybe we'll get free drinks. I'm so- <laughs> Can I tell everybody where I am? Right, People won't hear this until you're, go- you're long I'm, gone. I'm long gone. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's okay, I guess. This is uh, my second remote podcast interview for Independent Minded, and it's kind of a different vibe to meet artists and bands in remote places or backstage at venues. Or in their native habitat. I kind of discovered the band uh, when Fashion Nugget came out in 96. The single The Distance was kind of what turned me Mm. on to you guys and I kind of went from there. The band was kind of formed in a reactionary way to like the loud, angsty, American grunge of the era. You guys started in the early 90s and right when that music kind of hit the forefront. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of good grunge But generally, I saw the cultural gestures of that movement as more preening than any real sort of human suffering. In other words, if you really hate yourself so much, then turn your amp down from 11 down to like seven or something. (laughs) You know, if I don't believe that you hate yourself. Right. When you're up on the stage with your stack of amplifiers. So there's a little bit of a, a fakeness to it, you would think? Well, it just seemed like... It's breaking my how, teenage heart right here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I, I like rock. Yeah. But I, I think that I've got some cognitive dissonance about that era. Sure. It was wanting to be gritty and urban and sort of expressing human suffering. But... 
it was really sort of just rush and different clothing. <laughs> it didn't. Well, it that's didn't, a compliment. Yeah, yeah. I've got nothing against Rush, but Rush are in some ways less pretentious, right? Because they're just doing it. In some ways, it was a sort of a pose that was uncomfortable with power, whereas Rush was just dancing around, enjoying the power. That makes sense to me. Okay, what was your start? Your influences? Your inspirations as an anti-singer? I just found out at a certain point that I could make up melodies when I was, I, I took piano lessons when I was a kid and wouldn't practice very much. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but then after I quit piano lessons, I would play for like four hours a day, just sort of making up my own little things. And so gradually I started thinking I could write songs and, uh, and do that. And I'm pretty sure my first songs were horrible, but I didn't play them for anyone. So I was able to keep doing it uncrushed. After a certain period of time, I got more confident and went out and performed the songs. But I only thought of singing as just a way to transmit the songs. It wasn't something that I relished that much or fetishized as like, which, which is, I don't mean a negative way. I think Aretha Franklin is my favorite singer. You know, she's a genius. I don't know if she's my favorite. I also really love Frank Sinatra, yeah. who I think is also an incredibly intelligent purveyor of like phrasing so yeah i thought of performing as sort of a second class sort of thing to do it seemed garish sort of and i think mostly i was just shy you know i didn't really want to perform music every night but i did want to write songs that i really enjoyed so you know here i am the value of recorded music has descended into the the toilet and now you have like bands from the 70s circling the globe desperately in a trail of petrochemical smoke uh trying to like get enough money to pay for their house or their food and and it's just sad i'm laughing because i just saw the eagles for the first time in my life and uh that band just came to mind when you made that statement yeah a quarter century later are you still shy i mean did music kind of help break you out of that shell so to speak yeah somewhat i mean i i have a stage demeanor costume that i'm comfortable with and as long as i'm wearing that mickey mouse costume <laughs> i'm cool you know but it's also really alienating to have to be like stuck under that mickey mouse head all the time once you even when you're off stage it's like you're wearing that mickey mouse head and it's dark under there are you wearing it now i mean am i in yes absolutely right okay. <laughs> speaking of sinatra he's right here on my long list of questions uh that's obviously the the first song on fashion nugget i'm a brooklyn guy i grew up in and around an area where frank is a legend i mean he's a legend all over the world but at the epicenter of that yeah when you mentioned Aretha, when you mentioned Frank Sinatra, were these artists that were prevalent in your home growing up, or how did you discover those artists? You know, I was just a song scavenger. Like, I had no money for most of my adult life, so I would go and get music at the thrift store and just get vinyl LPs, and I found stuff. And I didn't really pay a lot of heed to genre or culture or tribal affiliations and it still sort of means very little to me there's probably more musicians that if they were being honest with you would say that than you think well i hope they've been being honest with me <laughs> well i've been wasting I think, my life then I, well i think i think what i i guess what i'm getting at is a lot of people that i know who are really good songwriters especially feel burdened with having to carry around this job 
that they didn't sign up for sure. of cultural signifying and tribal delineation. It sucks to have to be, you have to like devote your creative energy to that when really you like music, you know? Right, right. Do you think that open-minded philosophy lends itself to the eclectic style of the band? Yeah, and, and that's why it's so irritating. It was so irritating in the early years when we would be defined as, oh, they're eclectic. And I'm like, well, no, that's not the point. That's the opposite of the point. You yeah. know, the, the point is, you know, we're not concerned about it. We're not trying to like wear different like costumes. We're actually negating genre. That's we're punk saying, rock. We're saying F you genre. <laughs> and I just think people get burdened with all this other baggage they have to carry around. Listeners included. You know, listeners get stuck listening to music that's just one drum beat. Right. Because that's their tribe, you know, and it's like, what a drag. Now you're talking to a guy who came from commercial radio where there's a formula yeah. that is followed to, right. to a T, you know. Right. And that's not because people are insecure teenagers. That's because people are greedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's refreshing to hear you say that. Uh, and now removed from that situation, I, I guess I can be less careful about my wording when it comes to that sort of stuff. Because at a top 40 radio station, I was always kind of the square peg in a round hole interviewing guys like you who didn't fit that mold mm. even though you've had uh you know modicum of commercial success yeah. you'd never hear a cake song on a on a chr station maybe you did back in the 90s but not in, not in 2018 it never really happened too much right happened in brazil though all right really it ha it's happened in other countries but yeah but not well, here we're behind the times as always when it comes to music i think uh oh! There you go. Fire! <laughs> That's gonna be on the podcast. That was a sign. You're signed to Capricorn in '95. Your breakthrough albums come out uh, right around that time. Fashion Nugget in '96, Prolonging the Magic in '98. Now your last album, Showroom of Compassion, and this is uh, again something I didn't realize about the band, even though I own the album, is that you released that album independently on Upbeat Records, which is your record label. Is that right? Yeah. You know, we released it on a different label that no longer exists. But yes, uh, we released it on our own label sold it out of the back of the van kind of thing. Yeah. And actually it's got distributed a little bit in other countries for some reason. Like some of the first positive critical reviews we ever got were from France, which made sense to me at the time because we were making like anti big dumb rock music <laughs> and nobody got us here. You know, that first album people said, Oh, dinky beats and things like that just disparage us. But we were trying to create a smaller sound, not a big wide load, fat ass American sound. <laughs> and uh, French people got it, you know, initially, but yeah, so we released it and sold a few thousand here and there. And then, Capricorn picked up the album and licensed it. And the, obviously the album sold better with them distributing it than with us trying to play music and sell our music at the same time. It's not, it's not easy to do that. Didn't it debut at number one on the Billboard charts? Um, I don't think so. Yeah? No, well, that's, that's what the internet told oh, me. Okay, no, no. You're thinking of um, our most recent album. Right. Which was Showroom of Compassion. Right. I thought you were talking about Motorcade of Generosity. Yeah, no, no. Showroom of Compassion. Okay. Yeah, so our very first album we released on our... I was, must have been distracted by that bell. <laughs> our, our, our now, normally I would edit that out, but, uh, but yeah. I'm keeping it in. I'm keeping it in. It's an honest moment. It's All right. <laughs> well, 
we exist in the physical world and uh, we can't control everything. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. So then we thought maybe the whole music industry is sort of collapsing. Mm. Do we really want to like tie our success to this ship that is going down? You know, this big wasteful like thing is is dying so we just decided that we'd create our own label yeah and make call the shots whether or not we wanted to put resources into that or not you know the most frustrating thing i think for bands is they they put everything they have into making an album and then some weird corporate thing happens and that happened to us numerous times i can imagine yeah where somebody gets fired who's the person that likes you and then suddenly there's nothing there for you and you're stuck you know you fulfilled your part of the bargain but this corporate entity doesn't give a f it's so horrible and i know friends who you know who just like have been so disheartened by that experience so you do release that album and it goes to number one on yeah the it was so it was, yeah it was, a, it was our first self-released album in a long time and it went number one the first week which, shocked? Yeah. Well, I mean, which was totally shocking. Yeah. I think it set the record for lowest number I, I one. I read that as well. I didn't want to bring that up. No, but that's I'm glad fine. you did. I, I, I <laughs> wallow around in this kind of stuff. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, this album that we released on our own label and we paid to record and produce and everything, a number one album in this current sort of business structural scenario um, when I think about what I got paid by the hour for making that album that went number one, I realized that I would have done better waiting tables. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, literally. No, I'm, I, I know you're not joking. Yeah. Not. So, you know, we broke even and had a few dollars left over, but it's like working for free for a lot of bands. For 99% sure. of bands release recorded music only to have it monetized by giant multi-billion dollar corporations through advertising without their consent. And maybe they get pennies. So the current sort of system is similar to other systems like at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or something where workers didn't have much collective power. And although people don't really feel sorry for musicians, we are being exploited big time. You know, it's our fault, I think, for not having some sort of meaningful collective voice, just as it's any worker's fault for not organizing. You think there's a solution to that somehow? Well, I think there is. Yeah, I think there's all kinds of solutions, but people have to work together well with others. And that's something musicians have historically been very bad at. But I think it's possible. That's something Americans are seemingly bad at now. Well, we fetishize individuality over group cooperation. But in fact, that's a super um, impractical approach. When they talk about why did the Cro-Magnon people uh, thrive while the Neanderthal ancestors did not thrive, they're not our ancestors because they didn't thrive. For a long time, people thought, oh, it's tool use. Like, we had better tools than the Neanderthal. But slowly, anthropologists are coming to the realization that no, is actually we had better cultural ties and symbology and cooperation. Like they found 
similar sorts of like little sculptural artifacts in like groups of people that were living all over a large area from our ancestors well the uh and this is not about music but i think it yeah. is but the but the but the neanderthal you know is a small group of people completely unconnected from other small groups of people whereas the cro-magnon were were connected through culture and cooperation all right well i'm getting an anthropology lesson right well now. so i i guess what i'm saying is that the fetishizing of individuality above everything else is good like maybe for madison avenue or you know for corporations but it's not very good for people and uh it's destroying everything <laughs> we should just end the podcast right there yeah. on that down note there you go uh you took a seven year break you're about to release a new album is that right i think we'll probably be taking long breaks you know from now on for various reasons but um yeah so i'm working on new material and i think we're going to play a new song tonight that we've been working on uh, called Sinking Ship. Yeah, I heard it on SoundCloud. It's oh, awesome. Okay. All right, thanks. Yeah, so we played it last night in New York, and people seem to like it. So, yeah, so when we get enough of those, we'll release an album, I guess. <laughs> Let's circle back to your breakup with Columbia Records. You were kind of chewed up and spit out by the system after Capricorn. Um, I think Capricorn got absorbed by like Mercury and then Mercury got absorbed by Columbia. And Very you were, good. I think they wanted you to put a Greatest Hits album out and you said no. I don't know how you, you separated yourself from that label, but then you wound up putting out like a, a Rarities and B-Sides album on your own. You've totally garbled what happened, but it, you, got the, <laughs> you got the spirit of it. All right, fair Which enough. is, you know, just a bunch of suits like deciding what to do about culture that they don't even understand. Right. Some of my best memories of that era are like the guy who was in charge of one of the labels that we ended up on getting a little bit of Chinese food on his suit at dinner and just you've never seen somebody freak out and be like in the men's room for so long trying to get this little spot off of his, <laughs> like, probably $7,000 suit. I probably work with this guy at some uh, point. <laughs> yeah, you probably have. He probably tried to get you to do what he wanted you to do. But, yeah, so we, we found a way out of that situation, and it was simultaneously terrifying and empowering, and we knew that it could easily fail. Everyone was telling us, Right now is not a good time to try new things mm. because we had been through some disappointment with the other structure. We've been through a lot of, of disappointment with the other structure, like going way back. Is there any vindication in your mind, considering that you're removed from that and the band had that number one album, you're touring, you know, you're still relevant? Or is it just like it was a messy divorce and I'm glad it's over? I don't look back too much. But I do know we're in another situation where we have a new boss, and that is the tech industry. Yeah. And uh, they are just as rapacious yes. and Wall Street driven. And again, like if workers don't find some sort of collective identity and voice, they will not be treated well. They just won't, no matter right. what anyone says. It's not going to be pretty. It's like a Spotify playlist is the new right. the top 40 radio. Right. So and what, what happens if I think that 0. 
three of a penny is not enough for my song. <laughs> I have no recourse, you know, like I, I what if I want to say I want I want zero zero seven seven yeah you know and and it's like greedy but i've got you know i could take maybe if i'm lucky i can i can take my stuff off of spotify a lot of bands are legally like unable to do that you know but that doesn't change anything for anybody so my dream is that someday when things are more fair it would be legal for a hundred or two hundred economically significant artists to all together say to for instance spotify we would like point zero zero seven of a penny instead of zero zero three. Right. And that's the only way it's going to happen. Do you think it's apathy that causes these bands to just be like, or artists in general, or is it, I mean, because obviously the, the shift now is instead of trying to fix that more touring, more merchandising, yeah. just trying to kind of shift the focus of the economics of being a band and being an artist. And I get it because, you know, you spend hours in the studio, you spend a lot of time, it's your blood, sweat and tears, it's your babies coming out and it's free. I mean, basically it's free at this point. On a lot of levels, it's, it's weird to ask artists to wear all these different hats like to become like marketers and promoters and businessmen and publicists i mean in a way you're asking people that are uniquely ill-suited uh (laughs) to these jobs to go ahead and, and do these other jobs doing any job that is not your main passion is really draining so you've got a whole generation or, or two generations of artists that unless they happen to be very self-promoting marketing type of personalities, they may never get heard by anyone. I'll raise my hand and say I'm one of those people. Yeah. I yeah. tried to run a record label on my own for seven years under the same ideology that your band is under right now. And it shifts the focus away from what should be important, which is crafting songs and getting better at playing an instrument or getting better at singing. Right. So here you have, you know, just, I think an impractical situation for everyone. There's no real fair way for artists to like make it work. We have the tech industry saying, well, you never got paid for recorded music, you know, pointing to the, the abuses of the, the old music industry. Therefore we're going to completely devalue what you do and tell you that your real money is in a van driving across the country seven times a year. Right. And and that hurts artists that are not pop artists more than any anyone else. Like Absolutely. It, if you're playing improv jazz or bluegrass or you know anything that is not Taylor Swift, you literally are trapped because you're trapped between the the reality of there are very few jobs that will let you go off on tour for several weeks at a time to promote your music. But you can't live without that because you're, you know, your music <laughs> fundamentally, you can't tour enough if your audience size is 200, 300, 500, even a thousand people is not gonna feed your family. I'm raising my hand again. I've always had a day job in the radio industry because I knew I couldn't self-sustain yeah. off being a musician. So, so it's, it's fucked. Um, All right. Well, yeah. This has been the independent minded podcast. (laughs) You know, and, and, but again, I don't know what musicians were thinking. Like 50 years ago, we should have organized, we should have organized really strongly. Yeah. Um, well, how could we have predicted we couldn't that have this pre- would have happened? Right. I mean, 50 years ago, the Eagles were flying on their own jet, and a lot of bands like them were as well. Yeah. Right? A lot of like mediocre bands were on their right. own jets. Exactly. So there you go. 
I'd like to see artists like rise to the occasion and learn how to organize. So would I. A couple ideas. One would be the, a people-controlled platform. I think this would be good not just for artists, but for everybody. As if a corporation, like for instance, Facebook wasn't controlled. I mean, Facebook is a, our de facto town square for a lot of people. It shouldn't be controlled by a corporation. Mm -hmm. It's too important. Just like you don't want Google controlling all of the books ever written in human history, that shit is too important to give to a for-profit corporation. So I think we need to start thinking differently and think in terms of maybe cooperatives or uh, worker-owned situations where the workers call the shots. Yeah, like a co-op. There's a very successful co-op in Europe called Mondragon and it's been around for like 50 years or 60, I don't know how long. They make bicycles and tires and the workers own that. I watched the video for uh, Short Skirt Long Jacket for the first time in a long time. And I went on YouTube and I was forced to watch 15 seconds of Nicki Minaj's Ganja Burn. That's the problem. Right. So like, does that piss you off? And, yeah. and if it does, like you're obviously spouting a lot of knowledge and intelligent knowledge about how things could change. Yeah. I'm not putting you on the spot, but have you ever considered being a spokesperson for this sort of philosophy? Have you already kind of done that and I don't know about it? <laughs> yeah, or? well, I, I did sort of, uh, with some other artists, uh, start a, a nonprofit called Content Creators Coalition. We've been trying to affect things in modest ways in Washington, as well as other places and other, in other respects. You know, the stuff that I'm sort of talking about is big change. Yeah, and Grand scale stuff. Yeah, so you need two things. You need people that are uh, supporting causes and being proponents of ideas, but you also need people that get together and actually implement those ideas. And a worker-owned, like, cooperative music platform where the artist gets to decide whether there's a stupid ad in front of the video or not, and where the artist decides whether it's free or not, would be a really, I think, objectively positive development to let artists have consent over what happens to their work. I mean, I was outraged when I saw a Newt Gingrich ad in front of my song, Comfort Eagle, which is, I think, a fairly political song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like after having refused ad money for my whole career, like refusing a lot of car ads. And I'm not against doing ads per se, but I am against doing a bait and switch on your listeners. Right. Where suddenly the song that this husband and wife, they met during that song and it means everything to them. Suddenly it's about ketchup. You know, I just think is a really <laughs> thing to do to your, to your listeners. But like just to have refused all that money because of those kind of criteria, only to have YouTube putting ads in front of my songs with this sort of like plausible deniability of, oh, it's our algorithm, is just really uh, disheartening. Absolutely. Well, I don't have a solution myself, but it's refreshing to hear that you're obviously well-versed in what's going on. And a lot of artists, I feel like that is the problem is they just don't give a shit. <laughs> well, they're not supposed to. I feel like they know that they're not supposed to give a shit. There's this whole sort of Van Gogh dynamic, I call it, where the artist has to cut off the ear in order to gain legitimacy. They have to not care about their own personal welfare right. in order to have artistic credibility, Yeah, um, which is really, uh, I think, just another way to exploit people. <laughs> The exploitation in the music industry? I've never heard of such a thing. But, you know, what a great story to tell artists 
you know, like the blues musician has to have been in jail and he's had, had he had to have been ripped off by the label and all this stuff. And, right. and I don't dispute the fact that suffering is important for music. What I dispute is the idea that um, artists have to somehow feign disinterest in eating food. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears because I'm getting depressed. Yeah, uh, go for it. I was supposed to meet you at the venue. You took a, an Amtrak train, I would assume, down here to Columbia before the show tonight. You're touring with Ben Folds. Yeah. You have an aversion to touring. Is that accurate? I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep on a moving bus. Yeah, um, I don't do well when it comes to uh, moving yeah. vehicles. Yeah, so I stayed the night at a hotel, which is a huge luxury, but it meant that I got in late today and instead of going to the venue i'm just going straight to the next hotel where i'm gonna go back to sleep if i can so you're foregoing sound check is that the consequence of staying uh the well day? the rest of the band's gonna do sound check today uh i've been doing it all week and i just uh had to choose sleep because i'm i'm fighting some throat thing I'm a singer myself. Do you have any uh, rituals? Like, do you avoid uh, milk and cheese before your uh, performances? Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to avoid pizza. Which uh, is tough. Yeah. Which, well, it was so weird <laughs> when we were first driving the van across the country playing shows. It seemed to be the only food that uh, promoters would give us is pizza, which is really rough right before uh, singing a, a show for two hours. Yeah, uh, sure. And it's right there. It's probably very tempting. It smells good. and uh, Yeah. So eventually we had uh, on our rider, we put no pizza, which seemed really <laughs> effete in a way, but it was really because of <laughs> the physical reality of things. These guys don't want pizza? What's wrong with them? Yeah. Snobs. Right? They think they're so great. Yeah, well, I took a train today because of sleep problems. If the road is bumpy or if the driver wants to stop at truck stops a lot, I wake up every single time. Well, it's going to be like your whole happens. career has got to be like that, though. Yeah, right? right, right. So when I can, I try to avoid it so that I cannot get sick, you know, because that's what happens. You, you get sleep deprived and then you get a sore throat for the rest of the tour or something. Right. I read that you did something very cool called the Unlimited Sunshine Tour. You did it in 0203 and then 0607. Was this curated by you? Yeah, yeah. The idea was that, especially at that time, festivals and shows like that were being very poorly curated. It seemed like it was really just about money and just putting all the stuff that made money together. Yeah, I bought $5 waters at, uh, right. and I mean, I don't mean like a bottle of water, I mean like a cup of water, yeah. probably hose water, yeah. at Lollapalooza 93. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the best one was Woodstock, you know, around like 2000 or so. Yeah, I saved myself the trouble and stayed home for that. Where it was just all like dirt in the air, and like rape and like yes, all dirt shit, and rape. All, just all yes. kinds of shit. Limp Biscuit dirt and rape was, uh, yeah. was the highlight. We were trying to do something else. And we were also trying to sort of negate the importance of genre by putting like, I think we had De La Soul and Flaming Lips yeah. and uh, a Mexican band called Kinky and people enjoyed it. We even had a country band and, and it was just weird. And there ended up being like collaborations between the country band and De La Soul and like a lot of weird stuff happened as a result. So and you handpicked these acts? Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. We didn't do that for the money. Yeah. I'll just say that. Will it return? Is that something that you think about yeah, doing again? Yeah. I think once things, maybe if things ever stabilize and I've got some free energy, uh, I'll do that. <laughs> but I think it's got to Got to get this guy some more sleep. Yeah. yeah, that's right. 
I went to cakemusic.com and there were two things that I were fascinated by uh, during my exploration. Number one is there's a quote on the homepage from Ruth Bader Ginsburg that says, reacting in anger or annoyance will not advance one's ability to persuade. That's not a quote that you would typically see on the homepage of, uh, of, of a band. Right. <laughs> Can you explain the uh, motivation behind that? It's just, you know, just... We like interesting perspectives. And yeah. We could have put fortune cookies up there or whatever, you know. <laughs> I got a fortune cookie that said, uh, I swear to God, this happened. You need a new environment. Try Canada. In, is that an actual fortune cookie? That was inside the damn cookie. Was it in Canada? No, it was It was in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> and I was conflicted about being in L.A. I, was, I lived there for a couple of years. The other thing I noticed... There's a link to a cake forest. Do you give out trees at your concerts? Yeah. So we have this map of the world on our website, and there's these tree icons on which you can click. And uh, if you do that, a photograph opens up of somebody standing next to their newly planted tree that they got at a cake concert in Berlin, Germany, or Fresno, California. Yeah, it was all over. Yeah. So we just sort of leave these trees and towns and hopefully people follow through. I ask a question and whoever raises their hand quietly with the correct answer uh, gets the tree and they have to promise to take care of the tree for the next 30, 40 years or however long they last. Is the tree waiting backstage or is it a certificate for a tree? I have it on the stage. I, oh, right, you bring right next, the tree out. Between me oh, and, the, amazing. and the guitar player. <laughs> so they take the tree and, and most, like I'd say 90 Five percent of the time, people follow through, and we get to watch them like get older as the tree gets taller yeah. over the years. It, that's the idea: is that you know you kind of get a sense of time, and, and it's a great way to stay connected with your fan base as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, God knows we need more oxygen and less CO two. <laughs> Speaking of which. Years ago, in a lot of interviews you've done, you mentioned the Solar Power Studio that the band built. Is that studio still in existence? Yeah, we still have that studio, and we still work there. Um, and we still, as the value of recorded music descends, we still get free electricity, and so nice. that's good. 27 years this band's been in existence. You are obviously the anchor, I believe. You and your trumpet player are the two founding members of the band that are still in the band. Yeah. Why not try something else in that period? You've never put a solo album out. You've never been in another band. You've mentioned that this band has taken long breaks. Yeah. You've kind of had a revolving door of yeah. supporting musicians, some guys who've left and then come back. Yeah. Have you ever considered doing anything besides Cake? Um, I think I could probably do a pretty good job producing other people's music. But again, like recorded music, you know, I'd probably make more waiting tables than doing... Have you ever considered other. waiting tables? Um, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, kind of have a bad foot, but yeah, I could maybe try to do that again. I did it at one point. I hated it, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, I wasn't right. good so at it. So you tried it out at least. I did. I, you know, it's too frenetic for me. It's too. I'm not a good multitasker. I'm at the Doubletree Hotel. Looks like the wedding is about to start with John McRae. Holy sh**. From Cake. Look at that glittery dress. There's pictures being taken, so this might be uh, our cue to, to stop the interview. John, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much.
That was Sick of You from Cake. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Sinking Ship. All the goods on the band can be found at cakemusic.com. I want to thank Cake's manager, Tommy Manzi, their tour manager, Terry, for being accommodating gentlemen. The man himself, John McRae, for the musical education. And a big Feliz Cumpleaños to the young lady at the Doubletree, whose birthday John and I almost crashed. Happy birthday! Check out the photo on Instagram. Next time on Independent Minded, I'm backstage at the Miracle Theater with Canadian singer-songwriter Michael Ralt. 